electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Bono and Eisen, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, Cleanup in aisle nine, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond tanking today. We'll tell you what sent this stock onto its worst stay since June, plus a big call on crypto. One of the biggest names in the trade says, get ready for Bitcoin to double before the end of this year. She will lay out how we get there. And later... Pete is taking the mound to throw out his best idea why he thinks this bank stock is ready to rock. We start off with a late session sell-off to close the books on one of the roughest quarters out there. S&P 500 dropping 1.2% today, while the Dow fell nearly 550 points. All three major averages handing in their worst quarter since Q1 of last year. So what's the setup as we head into the final three months of the year? Guy, what do you say? Well, I didn't see that one coming. I thought quarter and month then you'd get a little window dressing and we'd actually close positive today. So clearly that didn't take place. You know, I've said for the last, I don't know, month, month and a half, incorrectly, by the way, and it's starting to play out now that I thought rates would go higher and the S&P was headed to 4,100. And I'll stand by that. I still think the 10-year trades north of 175 between now and probably Thanksgiving. And I do think the S&P will trade 4,100. By the way, I'll say it again. I think that's the most constructive thing that could possibly happen. That's 5% from here. That would be your sort of uh, run-of-the-mill sell-off from the all-time highs. And I think that would be the po- most positive thing for the bulls out there. So although I didn't see today coming due to month-end, quarter-end, I think it's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. This was uh, money flowing out of cyclicals, right, Tim? Because we did have the higher valuation stocks, the tech stocks. They held up in today's session. Yeah, I mean, on some sense, you know, to, you get a China PMI that prints north, excuse me, south of 50, which means contraction in terms of their manufacturing economy. Uh, not a huge surprise, but I think there's some question on global growth. I, I think the cyclicals also had had outperformed over the last couple of days as well. Let's let's see where we go with this. But look, we've been watching FedEx for weeks. We've been watching industrials for weeks. And the story hasn't been particularly good. Banks have caught a bid because of the move in interest rates. Uh, I think this week also has has punctuated some of the dynamics around the Fed. And there are two or three different angles we're now uh, talking about the Fed in the context of the market. Obviously, tapering in some sense that uh, they are getting ready to move higher. That is pushing interest rates higher. There's there's some of the just the turmoil around the Fed and some of the announcements and the re- the resignations and and Fed you know being held accountable and being pushed by Washington. Um, and I think there's been the dynamic, frankly, of the funding and, and the debt ceiling. And, and while we all know it's a foregone conclusion, it will get passed and, and, and you will certainly raise the limit. There's, there's certainly a lot of focus on the winding down of the Treasury account and a deficit that's being funded and, and a lot of concern about where we are all the time when GDP for the third quarter has been downgraded for the U.S. And as we go into the fourth quarter, uh, I think people are less optimistic about the strength in the economy they were a couple couple weeks ago. So, sure, those all play into a quarter end at a time when stocks had had a heroic run up until now. 5% pullback with some technical damage is something we're watching. Bono, and how do you think we're setting up to the end of the year? 
You know what? I think I'm a little more constructive. Um, Guy mentioned quarter in, and I, and I think he highlighted a lot of good points there. A lot of the people that I'm speaking to were actually, or, or historically at least, have been looking to free up cash going into quarter in. And as opposed to selling assets, what I saw, and I think Nadine has mentioned this before as well, a lot of optionality in the market. Looking to hold positions, overlay it with options, but continue to stay long. And I think that, to me, kind of stuck out across sectors within the market. So I think we're kind of setting up positively, you know, going into, into, the, uh, into the final quarter. With all of that said, I mean, I know we're down 120 basis points today, but I, I, I'm really not sure what, what the general public expects. It, there is no way that we're going to continue in a step function up and to the right every single day. I think a bit of a pullback is healthy. I think you, you really want to look at valuations, options market, and all of the, the subsectors to kind of direct how people are setting up. But going into quarter in where people are typically looking to shore up cash, I saw a very, very constructive outlook. Yeah, Pete, your take? Well, Mel, I think the, the reality is that the, the velocity of the movement we've seen to the upside has been absolutely incredible. Obviously, I'm talking about the 10-year, but we've even had that nice move, or at least recovery, uh, after a nice move in, in, in energy, specifically in crude oil itself. But also, you can include nat gas and so forth. But I'll tell you what, that's why we're seeing the spikes in volatility, in my opinion. Otherwise, I think it would be a little bit more calm. We finished the day. And we, sell, we sold off 250 points on the Dow in the final hour. We also sold off 110 points of the NASDAQ in the final hour. So a lot of folks at the very end of the month or end of the quarter having that kind of experience of where they probably had a little bit of nerves, I think, shooting at them. But I tell you what, I think going into Q4 and closing out the year, I think a lot of the same areas of the market that have been improving or have shown some nice gains, I think we've got a lot more room going back up to the upside. I look at financials. I think if the 10-year goes at a better pace and not just absolutely flying to the upside like it, like it has in the last week or so, I think that gives us a much better base to work upon that. And I continue to really love the energy space. So I've I'm very constructive as well. I agree with Bonwin. I think that there's a lot of potential for the markets to actually close out the year at a much higher level than we are right now. Guy, let's say we, we go to 4,100. Where are we at the end of the year? Are we higher than we are today? I'm just trying yeah, to figure I think out, so. do, you, do you trade around this 4,100? No, absolutely. Or you... I think so. I mean, look, that, that's what we're tasked to do, right? And I, I think that's absolutely the case. So if you're asking me to, to sort of paint out the scenario... You know, I think 4,100 to me happens over the next couple of weeks, and I think that sets up for pretty much a mind-numbing rip to the upside into year end. So I absolutely think that if we were to go on that 4,100 level, we would close significantly higher than we are now. I mean, if you're playing knockout options, not that I want to get too in the weeds here, I mean, that's a perfect setup, but I think that works out really well. I think the market will find its footing in terms of yields. I think the initial sell-off will be on the back of yields. But to Pete and Bonowin's point, and to a certain extent Tim's point, I think the market's going to understand that maybe yields going higher is a constructive thing. So I, in my opinion, I think you can be higher having tested 4,100 first. Let's say we go to 4,100, Tim. What's, what's top on the list, your shopping list? Well, um, first of all, you know, the 10-year, which was you know, rallied half a point today already gives you some sense of if the fear really is about growth, bonds are actually going to rally. Yields aren't going to move higher. Um, and in that environment, I, I'm not going to run too far away from Apple and Google. I'll tell you that. I mean, Apple needs to kind of hold on and, and, and 
this 140 level is a very important level for Apple. Um, but I, I think if the environment is one where there's some question about growth and, and yes, there's been fear about inflation, but if anything, some of these big cap tech companies aren't really caught in the same inflationary crosshairs. Um, I, I think you don't want to get too far away from the, the, the trade that's probably taken you most of the way here. I still think that energy and resources are positioned, though, to do very well into next year. I don't know where the dollar is going to go. That's something else. Again, we have to handicap. And, and around this week, the dollar was as much of the story as anything. Uh, but but you, you have supply constraints uh, and you have demand dynamics, I think, in core commodities that say these names are going to go higher. A lot of these companies are well positioned in terms of uh, free cash flow generation. So as stocks to own, not just trades to be in, I think you should not be running too far away from some of the names that actually seem to be more associated with a strong economy, but it's a change in the character of the way these businesses are run at a time when we do have inflation. These are reflation trades. All right, let's get to one bright spot in today's market. It wasn't technology. The stock is Netflix, hitting a new all-time high as Wall Street continues to cheer the company's move deeper into gaming. Netflix shares rallying 13% in Q3. We talked about this last night, but the run continues, Bono. And so I'm wondering what's your, what's your take on this and, and what the implications are for some of the other gaming players. You know, I'm not really sure how big of a deal this is for Netflix in the short term. Listen, I, I think for me the most attractive aspect of it is that it's diversifying from its core business. But at this point, I think Netflix is pretty ubiquitous in terms of um, on-demand type of streaming, uh, consumption of media. Right, I, I really think that's that's really the story here. For me, in terms of that general space, the names that I still like, despite recent weakness, I still like Pin and I still like DraftKings because it's it's somewhat of a gaming correlate. But I think that kind of packs in a bit more upside in terms of what is new and what still has room to run. There's there's a bit of unknown, yes, around it, but I think that they are. They're in, in prime situations in a relatively new market. And the same growth that we've seen in the Netflixes of the world, I think th those have that upside. So if I'm going to be putting money to work, I just want that five up, one down, three up, one down scenario. I th I'm not sure I really get that with Netflix at this point. Pete? I tend to really lean and like it a lot, Mel. I think this is genius. I think when you look at Netflix, you're always looking to say, okay, where are they going to grow? Well, we all bring up international, and I'm one of those folks that always brings up the international, and I still believe in that side of it. But I think the streaming and gaming is absolutely going to be a home run. They've been steadily moving closer and closer into that, that space, and I think that's just an unbelievably smart move on the part of Netflix right now. We continue to see all of this incredible paper. Stock was trading... 529 not that terribly long ago and we'd started to see a steady flow of buyers 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 in the options world looking for that kind of incredible beta kind of move well they've gotten it over the last month or so just this week mel they had three separate we had three separate buyers of unusual options in netflix so it tells me that people are still not tired they still continue to believe in the story and the expansion into the gaming space and i'm one of those believers so i actually own calls to the upside in netflix right now Elliot, let's get more on this move and, and also Netflix's stock move higher. Bring in Michael Pachter of Wedbush Securities. Michael, great to have you with us. Hi, Melissa. So, you know, in trying to, to figure out the importance of, of buying this game studio to Netflix, you had the quote probably of the day, and that is, the purchase of Night School Studios is analogous to one of the broadcast networks buying the badminton channel. So you don't think it's a big deal or you're a huge fan of badminton. Which one is it? I actually do like badminton. Um, <laughs> I, look, I think Pete 
said it really well. Um, Netflix is going to chase eyeballs. And Reed Hastings made a comment probably two years ago that his biggest competitor was Fortnite. And he's right. You know, if you roll back to our childhood, and I'm older than you, but your childhood, we all watched five hours of TV a day and nobody thought much about it. Now we're watching two hours of TV a day. We're playing games three hours. So, you know, I think Reed is addressing the demographic shift away from video entertainment and toward video games. And I think getting into this business is a really, really smart move. And I'm, I'm totally skeptical that they'll succeed. But I was really skeptical that they'd succeed with the uh, original owned content. And you know, it took them 10 years, but they're actually pretty good at it now. So I think Pete's right that this is an area they have to be in. They're going to have to invest a lot. Um, I had to look up night school studios. And I, I, I know you know this, but I know everything about video games. And if I haven't heard of them, they're, they're the bad men channel. So that's not the move you want to see them make. You want to see them buy Warner Brothers Interactive which is a real studio, probably for sale, and really makes great games. And you want to see them license all the Warner Brothers content. That would be a multi-billion dollar deal, but that's the kind of thing they really have to do. Did they buy a studio to make uh, content, Michael, to make movies, to make series? Did they buy a studio? You know, that would be a really dumb idea, but it's possible. No, um, I mean, did, no, I'm asking you, did they? And, and I'm asking that sort of knowing the answer, which is no. Because now right. they're really good at it, right? And they got good at it on their own. So, I mean, they, yeah, I they mean, can totally do this. I, I mean, we're seeing a lot of crossover of content. So, you know, clearly you've seen what Disney did with Marvel and Lucas and, you know, turning Mar the Marvel comic book universe into a bunch of really great movies and TV shows. And I think Netflix would really like to be there someday, but they're not there. Um, you don't start with a video game studio. You start with video game IP if you want to do that. That's why I said Warner Brothers actually makes much, 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 much more sense. Um, but, you know, there's not that much crossover appeal between games and, and film, games and TV. Um, you can name on the fingers of one hand, you know, Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil, you know, Lara Croft, the successful video games that have turned into movies. And those movies haven't been that great. So it's really hard. And Netflix is not the entity that's going to pull this off. Disney's tried three times and failed. Um, I think this is a really audacious move on, on Netflix's part. But I agree with Pete that this is something they actually have to do. So they're pursuing the right avenue. It's just a question of whether they execute. Hey, Michael, it's Tim. So welcome to the big show. And I guess that's my, my question really is forget the badminton channel. Um, but but who's really going out to buy uh, the name that matters and who is the name that matters? And and how about EA Sports and how about Activision and, and how about, you know, take two and, and some of these companies that really are monsters uh, and the valuations aren't terrible, uh, at least relative to where they've been for a slate and for growth that they're giving. Are they in play at this point? Are they too big? Full disclosure, I have a man crush on Tim Seymour. Um, the. the uh, Wow. The, de the demographics of the gaming industry are so favorable. I mean, they are set up in, in the 2020s the way healthcare was set up in the 1960s with Medicare, where we had an aging population consuming more and more of the product. That's what we have with video games now. Um, add to that the tech shift that we're able to stream games to any screen. And the guys who own IP and know how to turn that into good games are going to win. So yes, Activision, yes, EA, yes, Take-Two, Ubisoft. Uh, the one I would hold back on is Nintendo because they seem stuck with the old business model. Uh, so yes, you're talking about high single-digit top-line growth probably the next 15 years. 
and leverage on that. So probably 15%-ish earnings growth, way better than the market as a whole. You want to be in the sector. Um, the one thing that people really have missed is this Apple Epic lawsuit is massively beneficial for mobile game publishers, mobile game developers. Um, Apple charges 30%. Judge, Judge Rogers said you are not allowed to stop them from diverting traffic to another store. Ultimately, somebody, and I think that's Unity, is going to build a store as a game module as part of the game design. And companies like Zynga and Playtika are going to offer their, their items in their own store side by side with the Apple's App Store. Um, and you're going to see that 30% margin that they pay to Apple wither down to at least 20 or at most 20 probably as low as five. So I think the, the economics for the mobile publishers are, are massive. Mm -hmm. Activision is the biggest of the integrated publishers in mobile. That's, they have about a third of their revenue from mobile. Mm -hmm. EA is at about 20%, Take-Two, and uh, Ubisoft are much smaller. All right, Michael, great to speak with you. Michael you, Pastor. Melissa. He's got a self-professed man crush on Tim Seymour. I think that makes the end of the year real yeah. uh, on Fast Money. Um, Guy, where do you want to take this, yeah. whether it be the man crush bit or, or what I thought was interesting, aside from the man crush bit, uh, was the mobile gaming aspect. And that's not something we often talk about in the context of an Activision or an EA, et cetera. Yeah, well, no particular order. First to Michael, uh, take a number, number one. Number two, I think it's refreshing for Michael. I mean, listen, you know, he was pretty outspoken for years in his dislike of Netflix, and he's acknowledged that, hey, you know, he didn't think they were able to do it. And now he acknowledges, you know what, that he surprised them. I mean, that's really what his job is about. To a certain extent, that's what we do as well. So I admire him for that. I'll stay with Netflix, though. We really haven't wavered on this one. In terms of them not going big into gaming, I think that's smart. I mean, they're dipping their toe into something. They're seeing how it's going to work out. So, again, Reed Hastings, to me, I've said it a hundred times, the most underrated CEO in the country. I think the stock is in a new level now, traded up to 619. I think they report on October 19th, and I think this surprised people. I think the stock has some uh, giddy-up left in it. Pete, where would you go for video games? Oh, uh, you know, Mel, it's, I am no pro in that, that world at all. But I think EA is one of the names that I, I and Activision, those two names. But, I, you know, I, I appreciate what Michael was saying. I got to tell you, it is about eyeballs. And it is a, a, about all this diversification that we talk about all the time. And you were asking Tim a question earlier, and it made me think, Mel, you were talking about, well, what would you buy if things went to the south? And I would say that I'd like to answer that, even though you didn't ask me, Mel. But, uh, you know, Disney. I've been against Disney for a long time. It was over $200. It was way overpriced. I think that based upon that and where Disney has fallen to now, near the 170 level or below, I think this is a name, if the, if the S&P goes towards 4100 I think that's a name that's going to go a lot lower, and then suddenly the multiple looks like something that's much more acceptable. So I, I think that staying in that media world, you know, they jumped into streaming. It took them forever. They were late getting there. But once they got there, they've absolutely executed. I think that's what Netflix is going to do as well with the gaming world. I think that they are a team that can go after it and start to compete almost immediately. All right, coming up, a huge call on Bitcoin. Our next guest saying the cryptocurrency will hit $100,000 by year end. Why she says Bitcoin is about to boom. But for her shares of Bed Bath & Beyond plummeting as supply chain issues hit the retailer. We're digging into the details next. And you don't want to miss a bonus hour of Fast Money coming up at the top of the hour. So don't go anywhere. We've got a lot more coming your way. 
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Bed Bath & Beyond plummeting more than 22% after reporting earnings this morning. The company saying it saw a steep drop-off in shopper traffic in August. Bed Bath & Beyond also flagging, yes, we've heard this before, major supply chain complications. Um, Pete, it was a bad day for retail overall, particularly bad for Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah, they got absolutely hammered, Mel. There's no doubt. I mean, it's very much near the absolute lows. And this is a stock that for a long time has been trading as part of that meme or rebel stock sort of a world, right? I mean, because we look at what the short interest is here, and people have been able to manipulate around with that. But when they delivered the numbers that they delivered, that was absolutely terrible. And obviously, the stock reflected that by what you saw today, down 20-plus percent to the downside. I do think, though, Mel, at this level, finally, rather than being up in the 50s and now towards the teens, I think this is a level where it starts to get a little bit interesting. But I think if I were somebody who, and I'm actually considering this, getting involved in this name down at these levels, thinking that the supply chain will start to improve and they won't miss like they did so badly this time, I think this is a company where I'd like to put on maybe some upside calls and call spreads because I think the opportunity is there. It's trading in the mid-teens multiple. They still have a decent, you know, fundamentally the company is relatively decent, but that high short, in- short interest does have the opportunity for sort of a squeeze once again. So I'd like to be long some calls, which I'm not yet, but I'm going to be looking at this very close. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A huge crypto call. Our next guest saying Bitcoin will break 100,000 by year end. We're digging in next. Plus, grab your gloves. Pete Nunjerian is stepping up to the mound to throw some heat. The name he says is a total home run investment. We got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. 
Welcome back to Fast Money, a wild quarter for Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency surging 26% over the past three months, but the quarter ended with a thump. Bitcoin prices tumbling over the last four weeks, despite the coin's disappointing performance. Our next guest says Bitcoin is screaming by, sees it hitting $100,000 by year end. Melton Demers is the chief strategy officer for CoinShares, co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Cryptocurrency Council. Melton, it's always great to see you. How do we get to 100K <laughs> it's great to by be year here. I'm, I'm your resident Bitcoin bull. <laughs> How do we get to 100K by year end? What's the backdrop? Yeah, let's just look at the landscape. As I always like to say, you know, you got to bring the receipts. So, so here are the receipts. If we look at what's happened over the last six months since Bitcoin hit its previous high of around 65,000, we saw a lot of risks coming off the table. There was a lot of leverage in the system that got flushed out. Right now, we're hearing rumblings around a potential Bitcoin ETF approval. That would be cash settled contract based ETF. But still, there's a lot of buy the rumors, sell the news behavior in crypto. That's a big catalyst for looking at in Q4. There's also not a lot of open longs in the Bitcoin position anymore. So we're seeing a lot more firms taking on more bullish long calls. In fact, there are a number of six figure long dated option calls that are seeing some action going into the end of Q4 and early Q1. And I think most importantly, honestly, is there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines and a lot of investors are now seriously contemplating an allocation to Bitcoin in their portfolios. And there are now so many different avenues through which to do that, whether it's through a publicly listed investment vehicle or through assets themselves on platforms like Coinbase or Robinhood or Square. There's just an absolute plethora of options that are opening up the channel for retail and professional investors to get exposure to the asset class. Hi, good evening. Thanks so much for joining. Quick question about uh, some of the regulatory overhang in, in, in some of the space, particularly what we've seen out of China. D- does that change your outlook at all? Or, or can you kind of make investors a bit more comfortable in terms of how they would kind of abate those risks? Absolutely. Look, I think China has banned Bitcoin about 16 times since 2013. And each time the ban is slightly different. Um, This time, obviously, China is very concerned about minimizing capital outflows um, in context of what's happening in markets in China. And so um, I think in the macro scheme, we've seen a shift away from China and Bitcoin markets. Since as early as March, we've seen a shift in trading activity favoring U.S. and Western Europe trading hours, as opposed to historically the most of most of Bitcoin trading would happen during Asia trading hours. That's shifted. Even the trade pairs themselves, it used to be that the CNY Bitcoin trade pair or the Tether USD dollar sort of trade pair with Bitcoin were the most popular. That's shifted. We now see a lot more straight dollar Bitcoin trade pair activity, which is a sign that more of the participation in the formal Bitcoin market is happening through regulated existing financial institutions that are accessing the asset class through regulated financial institutions here in the U.S. as well as in Europe. So again, generally, as we look at the market, really the majority of the impact on the China side has been on the mining side. A lot of that activity has shifted to Iceland, to Kazakhstan, the U.S. as well. But if we look at trading activity in market microstructure, that activity had already shifted more to Europe and the U.S. And so from a market impact perspective and from a trading perspective, Mm -hmm. the China narrative hasn't really had much of an impact on volumes there. One of the tentpoles, Meltem, to your $100,000 case is that inflation is not transitory. And that's something that we talk about a lot on this show. At the same time, what if the Fed is right and inflation is transitory? How much of a tentpole is that to your bullish thesis? 
Look, I think at the end of the day, volatility is present in all markets, not just in Bitcoin. I think one of the biggest stories for Bitcoin over the last 18 months is a relative volatility story. One of the biggest sort of challenges that many investors had with Bitcoin historically as an investment was its perceived volatility. But as we saw in markets over the last 18 months, sorry, volatility in all asset classes, including you know things like treasuries, which have historically not been that volatile, have seen a lot of volatility. So I think from a relative perspective, investors are getting much more comfortable with, with the volatility of Bitcoin. And again, as they look at opportunities across the investment landscape across the board, there's a lot of inflation in asset prices themselves. It's not just equities and, and tech equities in particular, but it's also real estate. It's, you know, commodities. It's all sorts of assets that are seeing rapid price inflation and a tremendous amount of capital inflows. And again, I think cryptocurrencies are no longer a side show there. But cryptocurrencies Malcolm, are the main show. Just quickly, Malcolm, I mean, who's to say that Bitcoin isn't inflated right here? I mean, if, if there is no alternative and there's money and, and people want to allocate to something that's going to give them some yield, then wh why isn't the move that we've already seen in Bitcoin simply an inflation of this asset class? I think Bitcoin's number one characteristic that we often don't appreciate is the fact that Bitcoin has the scarcity property that many other assets don't. And Bitcoin's scarcity, especially in what we're expecting to see in Q4 when it comes to demand for Bitcoin, has a dramatic impact on price, especially when we see you know, $50 billion of Bitcoin around the world in Bitcoin-based investment products. That's supply that's taken off the market and that can have you know, really dramatic impacts. We've seen $10,000 a day candles sometimes in Bitcoin environments like these. So again, I think we can't understate how important the supply constraint on Bitcoin is in terms of its ability to have dramatic price movements. So right. we're Malcolm. optimistic. Always great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Melton Demures of CoinShares. Tim Seymour, you buy 100K? I, I, at some point. I, I'm not going to put a timetable on it. I do buy the scarcity value. You know, a lot of people look at the SEC friend or foe. I think the SEC is friend here, and, and I think you regulate this environment, which is ultimately what they want, and they want to protect investors. You're going to see this move a lot higher. Um, you know, what's fascinating about the inflation argument and, I, you know, Meltem shouldn't have to answer this question. I'm not sure many people can answer. What happened to gold? Um, and did Bitcoin really steal the thunder <laughs> from gold? I don't think so, because I don't think you've seen institutional adoption uh, in the way gold at least has been. But it's fascinating because the argument why Bitcoin could be uh, that great diversification in a time of monetary debasing, gold has done nothing. Gold is down 10 percent from the summer <clears throat> and isn't catching a bid in this environment. It's fascinating. Guy, just quickly, what happened to gold? Hard to argue with that. I mean, without question, I think to a large extent, you know, now that they're close probably to $1.6 trillion or so in crypto, I mean, that money probably would have found its way into gold. So I do think it's become a bit of a zero-sum game. That coupled with the fact that rates have gone higher, which lately at least has not been particularly bullish for gold, those things line up. Um, it's hard for me to argue anything that Tim said. I'll remain a believer, but it's very hard to do so at these prices. All right, Bitcoin, a big topic at this year's Delivering Alpha, but don't worry if you missed it. You can still catch all of our big interviews on demand. Head to DeliveringAlpha.com. Coming up, steer clear. That is a warning from Citi telling investors to stay away from some top names in the Internet space. We'll break down that call. Plus, we've got a fast pitch coming your way. Pete is taking the mound to pitch a bank stock that he says is a total home run investment. The name when fast money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out this mystery stock that is up almost 30% on the year. Are there even more gains ahead for this high flyer? Pete Nigerian says bank on it. He's stepping up to the mount to deliver a fast pitch. Pete, take it away. All right, Mel, I'm going to give you U.S. Bank, and I like this company a lot. And as a matter of fact, it's a local bank in, in Minnesota, at least started out there. And Andrew Ciceri has been absolutely amazing. He's been with this company. He's the leader. He's the CEO. He's pretty much everything. And he's had a lot of different roles at the bank since 2000. So he's been there a long time. I like that. I also love his aggressiveness. Once he became the CEO, he has been absolutely on a tear making acquisitions, not in, just in fintech, but also trying to get market share. He's, he just recently, within the last week or so, had a huge buyout in California, Mitsubishi Group. I thought that was huge, $8 billion. So it was a nice shot right there where they're going to have that much more exposure on the West Coast. That's what they were looking for. Then when you look at the fundamental side of this company, it trades at about a book, uh, price to book around a two, a little bit less, and that's been about average. When you look at this company as well, they've done so many things right, Mel, that fundamentally you look at that chart and you say, wow, that stock is really stretched. It really isn't. It's 12 times earnings as well. And then when you look at the price to cash flow at 10, this is a company that I think really still fundamentally can stand up. Lastly, when you look at growth, they've been very, very, very conservative in terms of certain types of growth, but loan growth, they do high quality. That's very, very important to me. Their dividend yield over the last couple of years, it's now 3%, but they've been adding the dividends, gone up at about a pace of 11% year after year after year for the last five years. So for all these different reasons, I think they're doing the right things. Rather than buying back as much stock as they were, they've been going out and buying companies to get that much more exposure. It's still trades cheap. I think this is a stock that can go a lot higher. Where are they headquartered, Pete? Uh, they happen to be up somewhere up in <laughs> Minneapolis, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was rhetorical. Guy, you have a real question for Pete. Yes, I know. <laughs> I do have a real question. Big fan of your work, Pedro. Um, yes, you're right. I mean, we talked about them during the financial crisis, one of the more conservative banks that were subsequently right. rewarded. I think, personally, that rates are going higher. I think higher rates works for them and their business model in a meaningful way, much more so some of these other banks. Does that make sense? It does make total sense, Guy. I totally agree with you. And, you know, they've always been very, very conservative, and some people were critical of that. But I think that's really paid off for them. I'd absolutely agree with you. I think they're doing everything in a quality way, and that's why this bank, I think, amongst the, the big regionals, I think really does stand out. All right, no more questions. Time to vote. Are you buying Pete's pitch on U.S. Bancorp? Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, I have a new whiteboard today, by the way, Mel. Um, so nice. hand delivered. Uh, happy to say I didn't let you down. Uh, and, and I love Pete's. I love Pete's. I, it, it's the U.S. Bank story. First of all, uh, the Union Bank acquisition, even with a consent consent order hanging over it, the California uh, consolidation and growth there. The valuation is very cheap. I like the story. I like banks. I like Pete. I like to buy this one. Wow, uh, Bonoan, what do you say? I'm buying the bank. There was another bank that was criticized for being too conservative throughout the mortgage crisis, J.P. Morgan. My, how hindsight is 2020. <laughs> Guy? <laughs> well, I wrote this prior to uh, that little diatribe, but can you read my smart board, please, Melissa? Okay, let's please, see. thank you. This, this Minnesota-based company holds the second oldest bank charter. Hashtag for 500. You see my hashtag? Yeah, yeah, nice. So I played a little Jeopardy there. Obviously, that would be U.S. Bancorp. As you mentioned earlier, you sort of stole a little of my thunder. I'm with Pedro. Go back and look at when this stock made its all-time high. March, April, May coincided with yields going higher. 
Yields going higher now will be great for USB into earnings. Well done, Pete. All right, clean sweep here on the desk. The traders have spoken. It's your turn now to vote. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on U.S. Bank? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We will reveal the results later in the show. Coming up, City giving a warning sign. The big bank telling investors to steer clear of some of the biggest Internet and social stocks where they say you can find better value. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Citigroup making some big calls on the Internet space, saying Wall Street is just too bullish on digital ad spending. Analysts recommend staying away from names like Alphabet, Facebook and Twitter, where estimates could be too high, and to instead consider Amazon, which has been a relative underperformer in the group. Is this the right way to play the space, Bonoin? Well, I'm certainly not betting against Alphabet, and I can understand the, the, um, the bullish case for Amazon. What I will say is that it's, it's really hard for me to argue against a logic for looking at personal consumption for like a bottom-up approach. But when I'm looking at margin of error, and it's 3 to 5%, and I'm looking to set up a short, I need more than 3 to 5%. I need a little bit more meat on the bone for me to be comfortable taking the risk requisite for me to absorbus that short position. So that's really the caveat that makes me you know, kind of have a little bit of pause with, with, um, with the view there. It's interesting, too, because effectively, Guy, they're saying to move away from the names largely considered as value within the space and go to the higher valuation names at a time when, you know, theoretically, interest rates are headed higher. It's interesting that they threw Pinterest in there as well. I, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not certain why, but I get it, ad spend. It makes somewhat sense. Listen, I'm with Bonowin on this one. You know, I think you flee from Google at your own peril. I understand the stock has sold off recently, but I think in terms of a business model, it's hard to sort of argue against it. Amazon, I understand. Listen, Facebook brings with its own set of problems, a lot of it uh, Facebook-induced. And I'll say again, for the seemingly hundredth time, you know, if ESG investing sort of captures Facebook's uh, attention or investors' attention against Facebook, that's it. Party's over. It hasn't happened yet, but the stock is certainly trading that way. Pete, you with Citi on this? You know, I, I don't agree with City. As a matter of fact, I think Facebook, we've seen time and time and time again, we've seen the, you know, how it's been so Teflon. It's one of my favorite names. I've held it for an incredibly long period of time. I continue to hold it. I'm not shaken out. I still love the fundamental story. We talk about eyeballs all the time, right? We talked about it with Netflix earlier. And I think this is all about eyeballs. Look at all the different verticals that Facebook has. And, and they, they're constantly, somebody's always after them, Mel. And it's usually Facebook's own fault. And yet the stock just continues on that path to the upside. I know it's pulled back. I like it. And as a matter of fact, I'm probably eyeing up an opportunity to maybe re-add to the position. Yeah, Karen was doing that, too, looking, at, looking to add to her Facebook position. I mean, there were Instagram hearings on Capitol Hill today, Tim, and the stock yes. was flat. <laughs> I, look, the, these hearings are a folly. Uh, and, and, you know, the senators that are asking questions are, are you know, probably still using dial-up or getting faxes or, you know, I don't know. But, it, it, you know, that, the, the issue with Facebook and, and the social issues on the social network are things that I, I think are, are ultimately the problem with the valuation and why it trades cheap. Uh, let's talk about Amazon, because I, I, I totally agree with Citi. This stock's been an underperformer because the comps were just so tough. Well, guess what? Those comps are just about to get a lot easier. And the e-commerce growth, which Citi is, is at the front of the line by far, that 
COVID punctuated and accelerated, just another trend. We talk about this all the time. Look, Amazon, to me, is also growing into that valuation. I realize it's not a cheap stock, um, but relative to itself and the ability for them to turn the levers, uh, AWS is still an enormous growth engine at a time when a lot of people are chasing cloud. Amazon has done nothing for a year. Um, If this market's going to move higher, Amazon's going to take it. Yeah, and, and Guy, you've always said don't bet against the U.S. consumer or the consumer in general. Here we are, you know, city saying... No. Yeah, absolutely. Here we are. I'm with Tim on that one. Absolutely. I'm 100% with Tim on this one. Amazon is growing into it. I mean, listen, it's Amazon's world we just happen to live in. And just to Pete's point, I get it. 100% I get it. Everything that Facebook has done, uh, it has not affected that. My only concern with Facebook, and it's been my only concern, is if people start talking with their pocketbooks in terms of investing in ESG dollars and forcing people out of the name. And listen, we saw it happen to Big Tobacco years ago. Uh, I put Facebook right there in terms of some of the health benefits or the opposite of benefits uh, that Facebook creates. Coming up, Chenier Energy ticking higher in the past few days, and options traders are betting this energy stock will keep pumping higher. We've got the trade next, and there's still time to weigh in on Pete's fast pitch on U.S. Bancorp. Go vote in our Twitter poll on CNBC Fast Money. We've got the results after this. Fast Money's back in two. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Chenier Energy taking higher today. The stock rallying 10% in just the last month. And one whale in the options market is betting the breakout is just beginning. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so Chenier Energy, ticker symbol LNG, saw calls outpacing puts by more than 10 to 1 on well above average call volume. The most active calls were the October 105 strike calls. We saw about 2,000 of those trading for about 85 cents a contract. Buyers of those calls are risking about 0.8% of the current stock price on a bet that the stock's rally could continue above 8% in the course of the next two weeks or so when those calls expire. Yeah. Pete, did you see this uh, activity? Yeah, I did, Mel. And I'll tell you what, energy's been on fire. Mike knows it. I know it. I mean, anybody in the options world has seen that for the many, actually, you could almost go back a year, and it's been absolutely on fire, looking for upside. There's been a pause here and there, but generally, it's been all to the upside. I am absolutely loaded up with energy. It's by far my biggest sector position right now, and I continue to hold it. I don't own these calls right now, though, Mike. I should have jumped in. I didn't do I haven't done it yet. Yeah, Tim, I'm wondering if, you know, we talked to Paul Sankey earlier this week, I believe it was, and he was talking about underinvestment in natural gas. And I'm wondering if that's sort of a shift that you'd consider in your portfolio. I, look, for sure. I mean, there's, there's two or three other themes involved here. In addition to the underinvestment, you have the inflation dynamic. You, you, you definitely have a case where uh, some of these companies like Chenier are actually giving cash back to investors and the valuations are not terrible. By the way, Mel, 100 bucks if you can tell me who Phil Chenier is or, or was. <laughs> can you narrow that down? I mean, out of the, everybody in the whole yeah. entire world? Sports you... figure. It's, you know what? It's, it's not you know, fair. Phil had a very solid pro <laughs> career with the Washington Bullets, now Wizards, of course. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, Bonowin, uh, back to energy. <laughs> what names do you like? Who is Paul Chenier? Um, sorry, um, Phil. Listen, I, 
<laughs> I've, I've mentioned in, in, a, in a few previous um, shows, like some of the international names I still think look attractive. And I, and I think it's from a more technical standpoint. It's really about dividend distribution. And so, you know, uh, Tim talked about returning cash to shareholders. I think that is a theme that's, that is going to be common across, uh, across borders. So I- anytime I'm seeing either an, an overinflated dividend being distributed for whatever may be coming down the line, those are the type of not only div yield, but when, when you annualize the amount of dividend that you're getting in the, in the short-term interim, I think that actually makes those investments pretty attractive. All right, Guy, you want to make fun of me, too? Just pile on Melvin. Not at all. I was actually going to back you up. No, I was going to say, Tim, you should be ashamed of yourself because, as you know, Mel completely discounted Phil Chenier because Clyde owned him in the 70s. So that's why she would. Why would she Good know point. Phil Chenier when she's a huge Clyde yeah. fan? Just saying. There you go, Mel. It's back to you. All right. Michael, thank you. <laughs> For more options action, be sure to tune in to the full show. That is tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay. Well, Pete had a beautiful fast pitch before. Minneapolis-based company, as per usual. It is time now to find out if you out there were buying Pete's fast pitch on U.S. Bancorp. Wow. This is the first in a while. Yes, the viewers agree with you. 51%. We're buying your pitch on U.S. Bank. 49% said no. I wonder if we let this poll roll on for like another 30 minutes, what the outcome would be. Um, but let's say rates turn go lower. Let, <laughs> let's say rates go lower. Let's say rates go lower. The sentiment on banks go sour. Bonwin, would you change your mind? Um, no, right? I, I don't think rates can go much lower. I mean, I think that's kind of been... The argument for, for those that have said, wait a minute, like we're talking about the velocity of the move, but let's take a step back and look at a historical context, whether it be from 120, 130 to 155, that's still historically very low in context. So, so, so <clears throat> excuse me. So, no. All right. Well, Pete, a win for you. Let's uh, go to the final trade now around the horn. Pete, what do you say? I'm going to give you Cody, Beauty's Products. We had huge upside call buying in there, Mel. I'm in that one. I think it's going higher. Tim Seymour. EOG. Look, if you look at the integrated energy names, especially the best of breed and those that are also giving cash back to investors uh, with an $80 oil price, and that's not where analysts have their strip, uh, EOG moves a lot higher. All right. Bonoan. Continuing on the theme of rates, I do expect XLF to outperform in the short term as more uncertainty around this rate situation kind of shapes up and comes into picture. XLF. Guy. Shout out to Bill of the Morristown Lowe's, 63 today, does never misses a fast money. Happy birthday, Bill. APA Corp, Mel. All right. See you later, Pete. Stick around, everybody else. Bonus hour fast money is coming up next. fans. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off tonight, but we've got a bonus hour of Fast Money coming your way. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Bono and Eisen. So let's get right to it. We start off with the biggest stock story of the day. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond plunging more than 22% on earnings. The company slashing its forecast on a steep drop-off in store traffic last month, while also sounding the alarm on, yes, supply chain issues and rising inflation. Bed Bath & Beyond shares falling to their lowest level in exactly one year. So is it time to ring the register on this one? And more broadly, Guy, have we reached a point where we've got to say 
the whole sector is going to face these problems and maybe we are in for revisions lower. Well, if you're ringing the register now, by the way, it's an honor to be here in Jim's time spot, Mel, number one. Number two, if you're ringing the register now, for you old timers like myself, you get no sale because, I mean, you, you just said it. We're talking about a stock that's at a 52-week low, so you're late to the dance. I still think it has further room to the downside. This quarter, in a word, was a disaster. I mean, the EPS came in well, well beyond, well below what the street was looking for. Revenues half of what the street was looking for. I mean, the sales growth was was a negative number. Just there's nothing to like about this. Now, is it carrying over? Well, if you look at Kohl's, it's there. And I think it's going to start to manifest itself in other places as well. For proof positive, go back and listen to what FedEx said, and that will make its way into retailers without question. Last hour, Bono and Pete was sort of making the case that maybe it's time to take a look at this because of how far it's fallen. Can you wrap your head around that tactic? I can. And I, I think Pete's point was about using options as a strategy to, to get some exposure. And if, if, and I say that a third time, if you are going to start to dabble, it would be an options because that at least allows you to define your risk. I, I think I'm kind of, um, uh, kind of summarizing what, what Pete's point was. Uh, with that said, I mean, I, I really don't think there's much to like. I mean, down 20 plus percent. You know, we speak a lot about the bifurcation within the technology sector, right, or within the growth sector. I think you're seeing that same type of dynamic also in the quote-unquote value sector. Every reopening trade isn't necessarily going to do well even after the Delta variant is gone. There are going to be new norms, and we saw it even going into this whole COVID crisis. Those that, that rely on, on the same, same store sales as um, defined by foot traffic in physical locations are going to suffer more than those that have an online presence. Um, couple that with the, the frothiness that we've kind of seen in the housing market and people's willingness to buy more, this isn't quite a durable good, but to buy more goods rather than services, I do think you need to kind of wrap your mind around that, that dynamic reversing a little bit. And I think this points squarely to that. You know, analysts on these earnings calls, and I'm sure all of you guys have been on these calls, usually say congratulations to the management team, et cetera. At least three analysts on this call this morning, Tim, said good luck. <laughs> good luck to you on the fourth quarter. That is not a good sign in general because analysts typically like to look on the bright side of things. But here we are acknowledging the challenges that this company faces. Good luck on the fourth quarter. And, and by the way, these comps should actually be pretty good for them. So if you think about the annualized comps, the sequential comps may be tough as you're starting to break out early second quarter. But, but the year-over-year comps for the fourth quarter um, should be very good for these guys. Look, I don't know if, if Guy Adami stockpiled and, and you know, pantry stocked on potpourri and scented candles and maybe people worried about a sales letdown. I, I, I do think you have a case here. What's your bigger issue with Bed Bath & Beyond? Is it that... There's supply chain issues, that there are certainly labor input costs and that there are higher prices. Or is it that the, the big issue with this company, why it was a broken company before COVID, was the Amazoning of its business. And, and I think look, a lot of companies have learned how to operate in an Amazon order and compete and actually go DTC and have their own digital presence. I think that's a bigger question for Best Buy here. I'm not too worried about COVID Bad breakout. Bad. I'm not too worried about supply chain. Difficult. Ultimately, I think you have a case here. 
Yeah, um, I have a question here because for all of you Fast Money viewers who tuned in last night, you will recall that we talked about Dollar Tree. We led the show with Dollar Tree, raising their prices from a dollar to a dollar twenty-five and a dollar fifty guy because of freight costs and because of inflation. Here we are, very different story. What is the difference between Bed Bath and Beyond and a Dollar Tree? Why is it that investors can say Dollar Tree is gonna gonna survive this and Bed Bath and Beyond? won't or will have more difficulty the difference is, difference is you can buy a jar of rayo sauce at bed bath and beyond i mean that's the only discernible difference that i can but i'll answer your question somewhat intelligently there is no difference they're all facing the same uh headwinds without question and it's manifesting itself in different ways at dollar tree you know what they could probably raise prices and get away with it they were rewarded for that Bed Bath & Beyond, they find themselves in a much different situation. And just because Tim mentioned it, let me say the following. I did stockpile scented candles, but I did it with Henry Bendel when that went out of business. And I probably have a gross of them or so in the basement. So there, Tim. Probably all of the nice uh, gardenia and jasmine varieties is my guess. You seem like that kind of guy. Um, so, Tim Seymour, we saw the entire retail sector sort of trade lower. In, and for Kohl's and for Foot Locker, those are sort of story-specific um, reasons because they got downgrades. Um, but in terms of like a Macy's, for instance, should we just expect that supply chain disruptions are just going to roil the entire industry and that we should be prepared for shortfalls? And, and Macy's and, uh, to a lesser extent, Nordstrom have not priced this in. So uh, I, I think throughout retail, throughout uh, certainly some of your specialty retail, you, you've, you've definitely seen a lot of this priced in. Macy's was trading, you know, Macy's up 350 percent even after today's move year over year. Um, it's a story. It's a turnaround story. It's a it's it's a balance sheet recovery story. It's a digital, uh, you know, carve out your space story. Um, I, you know, the news today for Macy's was that they're suing Amazon to get a billboard um, off their Herald Square store that Amazon is right on top of them. But but the story really was about Kohl's. And, and if you think about what department stores are facing and think about all three of those names, and I mean Nordstrom's, Macy's and Kohl's, really, where were these stocks a year ago? And, and do it's the same question I would throw at, at the, the Bath and Beyond folks. Do you, do you believe that these businesses have changed their trajectory? Um, because to me, first of all, yes, Macy's and, and Nordstrom's haven't priced in a whole lot of supply disruption. Uh, I do think others have. But I, I, I think investors, after a huge run in some of these names, have to wonder, where is the multiple now? Yeah. And so, Bono, and the question to you is, are there retailers like a Macy's or a Kohl's, the, the department stores, if you will, the mall operators, the mall stores, that you would say, you know what, they have changed their business because of COVID. They have gone more online, and I'm willing to put money into the stock today. Um, the short answer is no. Honestly, I'm, I'm not very constructive that entire space and have not been for some time. Um, I, I did have, I did have um, an aside on the, the question you asked about Dollar Tree. And really, it's, it's about basis for me, right? Like Dollar Tree, if your average, let's just say, sticking with its namesake, the average price of its products are a dollar, you raise it a dollar twenty-five. that's a 25% increase. That, same, that doesn't translate to some of these other retailers that we're talking about. Um, so I, I think it's at, at some point, it really is that simple. But going back to your question, no, I think that the whole mall situation, in fact, I'm, I've been reading about some um, suburban situations where they're converting those spaces into, into storage or, um, out, or, or um, distribution centers. So, no, I, I think you are completely seeing the landscape change there. 
All right. We've got some breaking news here um, on Lordstown Motors. Phil LeBeau's got the story. Phil. Hey, Melissa, this was reported earlier today by the Wall Street Journal, and now it has become official. An announcement by Foxconn and Lordstown Motors, where Foxconn is going to be taking an investment stake in Lordstown Motors. But the more interesting part of this agreement is that Foxconn, for $230 million, will buy most of the Lordstown Motor final assembly plant in Lordstown, Ohio. There are parts of it including the motor hub facility, some of the other areas within the assembly plant that will remain with Lordstown. But for the most part, Foxconn will become the owner and operator of this plant. It will work with Lordstown Motors to be the contract manufacturer for the Lordstown Endurance pickup truck. That's the the model that they're trying to build and Hopefully, they hope that they can deliver it by the end of this year, if not early next year. In fact, I think they've already moved it into early next year. The significance here, Melissa, is that this helps Lordstown Motors, A, with a cash infusion, and B, it gives them some certainty that perhaps they have a better chance of getting the endurance pickup truck built and out on the road. For Foxconn, this is a great deal. You're getting a final assembly plant. Remember, it's the old GM plant, so it's not like you're having to build it from the ground up and wait however long it might take for that facility to be built. You've got a plant that is ready to go. That means contract manufacturing is ready to go relatively quickly. And as part of that, who's one of the uh, companies that has already reached an agreement with Foxconn to have its vehicles manufactured by Foxconn here in the United States? Fisker. And you can bet Fisker will be doing this. In fact, we'll be talking with Henrik Fisker, the CEO of Fisker, tomorrow morning on Squawk Box about what this means for Fisker's plans to have a vehicle manufactured here in the United States. And perhaps that means it'll be out on the road a little bit quicker. But again, Foxconn buying the Lordstown Motors final assembly plant, almost all of it, not all of it, but a good chunk of it, and being a contract manufacturer for Lordstown Motors and also taking a stake in Lordstown Motors. Melissa, back to you. I have a couple of questions, Phil, and that is um, Lordstown, sure. um, excuse me, Foxconn taking a stake in Lordstown. Does that jeopardize any of the other relationships it might have with being, you know, contract manufacturer for other electric vehicles? You mentioned Fisker, so I don't know if you right. s- if you think there's a problem, but I, I mean, don't if think they have it a does. stake in a competitor, I don't think theoretically. it does. Okay. No. No, I don't think it does. Look, contract manufacturers uh, are, by their nature, when you look at somebody like Magna, which builds a number of vehicles for a number of different automakers at its plant in Europe, um, that's the way it is with contract manufacturers. You make the agreement with that company that you've got the final assembly plant, we need you to build a vehicle, let's have a one-on-one relationship. Even if the vehicle that is being built may be competitive with another one where Foxconn has a relationship with a particular Mm -hmm. automaker. At the end of the day, if you are Foxconn, what you want, as many automakers as you can handle within a facility, to come to you and to use you as a contract manufacturer. So they've got that facility now. Fisker is one of those clients, and likely, Lord, and it will be. Lordstown Motors Mm -hmm. will be another client. So is Lordstown now basically an IP company with a small stake in a manufacturing facility? They do have some manufacturing uh, capabilities there. The electric motor hubs, that's not part of this agreement. They're not selling that, nor the facilities that build those uh, electric motor hubs. That's not being sold over to Foxconn. So they do have some assets aside from the IP, but they needed this, Melissa. I mean, these guys were dying on the vine, and everybody knew it, and they needed to do something in order to get the cash infusion and to give them a shot at getting the endurance out on the road. 
All right, Phil, thanks so much for joining us with that breaking news, Phil LeBeau. Um, looks like a lifeline, Tim. Do you think it really is? Uh, you need a much longer rope uh, and you need a lot more cash. Uh, you know, they just announced that they've got about 240 million of cash on their balance sheet down uh, from where they expected. They have SGNA that's just been upgraded to 120 million. Um, this was a company that, you know, when we were chronicling this demise months back, was using words like concern of being a going entity. Um, so, right, IP and technology are things that have a lot of value, um, and maybe that's the best way. And contract production is, is certainly a, a way to keep your cost base down and really the only way they can do it. But um, I would be running far from this one. This, isn't, this, this to me, is, is optionality for Foxconn. I get why they're there. Um, as an investor in the equity of Lordstown Motors, I don't get why you're there. All right. Um, Lordstown up about 11 percent after hours on the news. Coming up, Facebook under fire. Congress demanding answers today over the company's Instagram app. The details in the fallout straight ahead. Plus, we're closing the books on Q3 with a game of choose your own adventure. The chart master is laying out five different paths for the markets into year end. Find out which ones our traders will take. We're back right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We are following a developing story on Facebook. The company on the defensive again today over its Instagram app. Let's get to Julia Borston with the details. Melissa, the Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Protection grilled Facebook's global head of safety, Antigone Davis. She defended Facebook's intention to help its users connect while under attack for knowing about Instagram's toxic impact on teens and failing to act on it. Attacks came equally from both sides of the aisle. Senator Ed Markey compared social media to big tobacco. Facebook is just like big tobacco, pushing a product that they know is harmful to the health of young people, pushing it to them early, all so Facebook can make money. IG stands for Instagram, but it also stands for Instagreed. Davis was pressed for details on Facebook's plan to move forward with Instagram for kids, which she didn't share. Davis said repeatedly that the research that Facebook has drawn so much scrutiny for had no bombshell revelations and that they use this type of research to improve the company's products. The committee will continue to pursue this topic on Tuesday with a hearing with the whistleblower behind those leaked reports. Melissa. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. That was quite a soundbite. IG stands for Instagram. It also stands for Instagreed. <laughs> Stock is flat today, Guy. I'm curious as to how many people got in the room to come up with that one. I mean, they're brilliant. Clearly, uh, Mr. Markey has watched Fast Money a number of times over the last six to nine months because it's pretty much everything we've been saying. Yes, it was flat today, but it has gotten obliterated over the last few weeks. I think that's pretty clear in terms of the stock. I'll say this again, and I've said this on the 5 o'clock show now that we're on the 6 o'clock show. I'll say it for this audience. There is nothing I like about Facebook. I find everything about it just to be reprehensible is the word I choose to use, except the stock. What I have said, and I'll say again, this falls under the auspices of ESG investing, and it's game over because they can bring these folks up to Capitol Hill and testify. It has no bearing whatsoever. But if people start paying or not paying with their checkbooks and their uh, investment accounts, it's going to be a real problem for Facebook to get out from under this. This is big tobacco however many years ago. Yeah. Bonowin, would you agree, or was that just a sensational 
sort of headline for, for Mr. Markey to send home that this is big tobacco? Um, first and foremost, I definitely want to make sure that I, that I pay respects to mental health and understand that that is a very serious situation that should be taken seriously. So all jokes aside, the soundbite is hilarious, but I, I want to make sure that we keep that front and center. Comparing it to big tobacco, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Now, we're talking about consuming a good <clears throat> that you know has been linked to cancer and all other types of health issues. Um, I don't think Facebook will kill you in and, of, in and of its own right. I understand that there is corollary between depression and things of that nature, comparing oneself to, to others. But ultimately, I do think that, yes, Facebook owns some of the responsibility here. And they have been somewhat impervious to all of these um, Capitol Hill attacks. I mean, it just seems like they don't stop, but they walk away unscathed each and every time. But also, as the consumer, you do own some responsibility for how you did how you determine to spend your time. You don't have to, to be on it. I mean, it, it's addicting, but again, all those studies are a bit less inconclusive than a, a, a physical consumable good that is leading to death directly. I, I don't see that exact same causal link yet with Facebook. Yeah, the link is a little bit more tenuous, Tim. At the same time, that doesn't prevent Congress from enacting regulations. Well, or it doesn't look, it doesn't stop no, it, it doesn't it, stop Facebook from saying, you know what, we're going to pull back on Instagram kids, even though we previously thought that that was going to be a big growth area for us. We're going to do it of our own accord because of the regulatory scrutiny. And that even tangentially slows down its growth. Yeah. And look, the metaphor from from Mr. Markey is is one where you know, there's different ways to to phrase this. Um, I, I prefer to say data is the new oil. So 15 years ago, uh, the most important strategic asset in our country was oil. Um, now it's data. It's your data. And, and Facebook's uh, ability to, to do the right thing with it, um, I think, is the bigger issue. And I think there's a trust issue. But, but the trust around um, Facebook coming up in the last three weeks and saying, oh, we've just learned that this has deleterious effects or whatever they say. Um, guy, that's a that's a big word. Um, but I, I think you've got a case here where uh, the most important dynamic is Facebook, the stock for a lot of folks watching this show. Um, that stock has outperformed the triple Q's or its peer group in mega cap tech by 10 percent this year. Um, and, and I think, you know, what if you look at it on the charts, a lot of people would love to see this stock break 330 and and get down to where I think it will absolutely hold, barring a major change in a dismantling at 300. So I, I think it gets to a place and Guy has pointed this out. He hates the company. He the stock's a different story. And, and I think that's ultimately where you get. I think Facebook will continue to trade at a massive discount to its peer group. Um, but at some point, look at those second quarter numbers. Average price per ad was up 47 percent. Revenue growth up 56 percent. I mean, these are monster numbers for not a small company. Deleterious, five syllables, by the way. Still ahead, choose your own adventure. I will use, the, it, I will use it in a haiku. I'm sure you will. The chart masters <laughs> laying out are five different scenarios on where the markets will finish the year. Find out which path our traders are taking. And later, a red alert in housing. Rates are on the rise, and that could have a major impact on your mortgage. We will break down the impact when a special edition of Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. As we close the books on Q3, it is time to map out the rest of the year. The chart master's got five different scenarios, or what he calls odysseys, on where the S&P 500 will end the year. He's going to lay them out, then the traders will choose their own adventure. So Carter Worth of Carter Braxton Worth Charting, kick it off. You bet. So uh, this is called Choose Your Own Adventure. It's the 15th annual uh, survey. It's been done in the course of three different firms. And it's simply modeled after the children's series from the 1970s that, interestingly, was rejected by hundreds of publishers and ended up being one of the best-selling in all children's history in multiple languages. Let's look at the scenarios. Uh, first chart, this is a chart of the S&P 500 as it stands right now. And um, respondents were given a choice of five scenarios. So the first scenario, and you see that here, now we go to the next chart, is Odyssey number one. And what this calls for is essentially a um, little bit of weakness here in October, and then off to the races essentially in November and December, ending at around 4,900. Now, the truth is, this one's already kind of out the window because we had more weakness than this would allow. Look at Odyssey number two. This was also a popular pick, about 400 respondents. This calls for weakness, which we are seeing right now in October, but then a strong rebound in November and a good, a strong seasonal December ending around 4,700. Also a very popular choice. The third, and, and to some extent, this is out, uh, so Odyssey number three, where we're kind of flattish, we eke out slight new gains, but December's not really all that good. We end up a little bit higher than where we are now. And to some extent, there's no swoon in this scenario. So this is already not the trajectory the market's likely to travel. Um, Odyssey number four. Now take a look. This is the seasonal weakness. And and to some extent, we're seeing this now. Now that swoon uh, is down as 3,700 and we don't ever really recover and we end the year 4,000, 3,900. And the fifth and also popular choice among the respondents was that we do have a seasonal swoon, which we're seeing now, but that we get a seasonal recovery in December, often a very strong month, and we climb back and uh, undo a lot of the damage that we've seen uh, in the October period. So, Carter, I know the game is choose your own adventure, and, and the game is to pick where the S&P 500 will end the year. But within this, is there sort of a linchpin sector and sector performance that, in your view, sort of governs which path is more likely? Well, of course, it is just by virtue of the weighting in the super cap growth names and others. I mean, if and as you get more meaningful selling in Apple and Microsoft Google and Amazon, Netflix and Facebook, et cetera, and so forth. Now, that takes the market down mathematically. Uh, my own hunch is that we will stop for a bit at the 150-day moving average, which is uh, about 3% from here. Okay. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth of Carter Braxton Worth Charting. It is time now for the traders to choose their own adventure. So, Guy, which odyssey speaks to you? Well, I truly hope I did this correctly, Mel. I had, I had the information and I had the instructions in my ear. Uh, you'll see I did 05 because I don't know mm-hmm. how to spell Odyssey, and that's up 18.6%. It's sort of in line with what I said during the 5 o'clock show where I anticipated a bit of a sell-off in the S&P down to 4,100 only to find its footing and rally in the back half of the year. So that would be my selection. Yeah. Bono, and how about you? Well, I too. Well, one of one of us didn't do it right. So, twenty one point one percent is where I'm at. I do think that there's a bit more volatility rather than it being straight up and to the right. Okay, so uh, Bonowin chose Odyssey number three. 
There's a lot to follow along here with the five odysseys. I know it's tough. Um, Tim Seymour, what do you say? Well, I, I did it right. I chose space oddity number three, and, and I'm, I'm a, but Bonwin hit the right number, which is 21.1%, which is effectively where we were before we just started the sell-off. I, I think uh, we'll probably trade down to 4,200, and, and then I think we will ultimately rally back about 7%. It will feel pretty good by the end of the year, and I think we have big problems in the first quarter. Um, but I do think we're going to get back to those old highs, and I think we will stall, uh, which means right. I, I think we have a little bit more to go to the downside. Okay. Coming up, diamonds in the rough. Four stocks doubled, down double digits in Q3. Are any of them worth a second look? Find out straight ahead and later the return of the Mick, a saucy story out of McDonald's today. We have the delicious details when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money with the third quarter in the books. We thought it would be a great time to go bargain hunting. So we dug up four beaten down stocks in Q3 to find out if any are worth a second look. We kick things off with wind down more than 30 percent in the third quarter. Guy, would you trade this or fade this? I like this game. This is a fast money game. I would trade it, Mel. I'm going to try to play correctly. And one of the reasons is because of the sell-off has been remarkable. From 134 down to current levels, basically held the October lows, but I, I hearken people back to September 24th. Uh, Jim Cramer, who typically occupies this time zone, had Matt Maddox on, the CEO of Wynn, and he, I think, assuaged some of the concerns that people had. He said, look, China's a big deal, but it's not nearly the, to the extent that people are making it out to be. I think it's too cheap here. I would trade it. Bonwin, what say you? I'm also trading this one. Um, it's bounced nicely off that 80 level, which is about where it based... Um, Back in November or December before it bounced up to 90, you know, in this market, I'm kind of looking for laggards. And this fits squarely into some of those names that we're seeing. We're seeing it in the retail space as well, as there's less foot traffic around the Delta variant. I mean, for me, I'm just looking for names where I, where I can have a bargain um, without overpaying in terms of valuation where I see upside. So I'm dipping my toes in here. All right. Let's get to FedEx down more than 26 percent in the third quarter. Tim? Yeah, I'm a buyer here, Mel. I'm going to trade this to play this game correctly. Uh, and, and I think the story on FedEx, while there is cyclicality ahead that may trouble uh, the macro around this company, I think this is a bottom-up story. I think FedEx is under-earning. And that could also be something that would concern people more than the top-down pressure. But I think they're going to get this right. I think they've had a rocky uh, eight quarters or so where management has has at times disappointed, especially on the margin. Again, if they got to the same margin that UPS was operating at, instead of being at 24, 25, 26 bucks a share, they'd be closer to $35 a share. Um, The company is cheap. That has never been a reason to buy it. Um, But I do think this is a company that is under earning and can get back to a higher multiple, even if they don't get back to where UPS trades. I I like it. Guy, how about you? Trade it. 10 multiple is too cheap, uh, given where it is in terms of the market and given historically where it trades uh, in terms of its own multiple. I think, obviously, the sell-off I didn't anticipate because you Fast Money fans know that I power-pitched it a while back at 294. That being said, I think in the 220s, it's too cheap. All right. And finally, let's get to Zoom before we get to the trade. We've got some news on Zoom. It's merger with 5.9 is off. 5.9 shareholders did not approve it. That news just crossing here. Zoom is up slightly in the after hours. 5.9 is down 
back to the trade on Zoom for the Q3, the stock is down 32%. So, Bonin, what do you do with this? Uh, I'm fading this one. And uh, I know it's been a darling during COVID, but you know what? You just can't fight the trend here. I do think the, the RSI is starting to approach that oversold level. But listen, we're, we're looking at ways to deploy capital here. And with this whole inflation story, these are the type of names that are squarely in the sites. So I'm fading it with an understanding that once it starts to get a little oversold, I'll probably look for calls to get a little more exposure. Tim? Sales multiple makes no sense. I'm a fader uh, as well. I, I think you have a case here. Despite the fact that they've created uh, new vernacular in, in our world, um, and, and I'm zooming this and zooming that, their ability to broaden this platform and hold engagement and actually really ultimately increase uh, the revenue per user is very difficult right now, even though they've grown their enterprise business. Uh, competing with Microsoft not going to be easy with anybody, uh, and teams have stepped forward as well. But this is a multiple issue, uh, difficult comps, and no, I'm a, I'm a fader. All right, coming up, we are tackling your questions. So tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We might just answer you on the air. Back right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. Time to take some of your questions. First up, Kit in Colorado. Hey, this is Kit Regeer, and today I'm asking about Micron. So on Tuesday, Micron released their latest earnings report, beating expectations across the board. Despite this, the stock has fallen since, now trading around $72. This down from a 52-week high of about $97 back in April. We're seeing price targets of $100, $110, 120 So what's depressing this stock right now, and could it be a good value buy? Thank you. Guy, what do you tell Kit? I think it's 70 bucks. It is a good buy. What's depressing the stock? I think the market got concerned. A, it got ahead of itself. And B, the commoditization that we've seen before in terms of NAND and DRAM. But the fact that the stock didn't get pretty much smoked today on the back of that release and then subsequent guide is a good sign. As a matter of fact, I know you know this, Kit. At one point today, the stock was positive. So I think this $70 level is value. Uh, I don't know if it's getting a 110, but I think it could easily challenge 85.90. Yeah, Bono, and what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. From a technical standpoint, that $70 level is going to be somewhat of your line in the sand. On the negative or less constructive side, that 50 DMA crossing through the 200 does not set up well for me. So I would wait to see how it trades off of 70 before reengaging. All right. Uh, our next question from Riley in Georgia. Thank you for taking my question. With parks reopening and movies coming back to theaters, do you think right now Disney would be a buy, hold, or sell for the long term? Uh, again, thank you again for taking my question. Tim, what do you tell our friend in Georgia? A friend of Georgia, very polite young man. Um, I, I, Riley, I tell you, I think Disney, first of all, these guys just talked about the last stock that needed to hold levels. I really want to see Disney hold this 165 level. But Bob Chapek's comments about fourth quarter subgroup were, were certainly disappointing. Um, also, slower rollout of, of Star Plus in Latin America and some dynamics there. Look, reopening in parks and movies are great. Um, the fact that this company is really 
split itself into divisions that are more representative of the current business. So content and distribution, I, I think it's ultimately a positive. Uh, I think the story for Disney right now is is you are going to see some recovery in these subs. I think you priced a lot of bad news in. I'm, I'm long the stock, full disclosure. Uh, valuation has come back, but uh, on the charts, this thing does need to hold these levels. Tim's right. It's got to hold here. I mean, you saw sort of the one of the first little flaws in the Disney Plus story a couple of weeks ago, and the stock was punished on the back of it, but it's finding support here at these levels. I have insider information, yes, I'm using that term, that they are bringing back Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which should be at least worth $10 to the stock. Uh, I like it at these levels. I think it can rally into the next earnings release. Bono, and you like Disney? Um, I like Disney. The other, the other two panelists spoke to the fundamental story, and I think that sets up well. But you can literally draw a straight line from Dees to now at that 155 to 155. Like that channel there, we've all said it, that is the line in the sand. Um, and you're trading based off of momentum and technicals right now. It's like it's really not a question. That is, that is one of the most compelling trend lines I have seen in a long time. All right, let's get to our final viewer question for tonight. What's going on, Fast Money team? Frank here from Pennsylvania. And I just had a question about Tesla. We have delivery numbers coming out next week. Giga Berlin's gonna get approval soon. Um, the stock is trading up near the 800 level. So I think that it could break out to that 900 all-time high next week with those extra catalysts of delivery numbers and the Giga Berlin plant. I'm curious what you guys think. Thanks for having me. It always makes me a little concerned when viewers send in video questions from their cars when the cars are moving. Um, let's mm -hmm. hope Frank was Good out point, of light. Um, Guy, what do you say about Tesla? <laughs> let's hope he was in a light and let's hope he wasn't in a Tesla self-driving car. Uh, I think he's on to something. I would look at it and say, you know, the comments that Chamath made yesterday to Scott Wapner, the fact that that didn't uh, nail the stock today to the downside is very encouraging. I do think, given the setup, it could test those January highs, which, if memory serves, was $900.40. Bonowin, what do you say about Tesla? Um, I'm not even going to try to argue around the valuation of Tesla, or we will be here all night. This is purely a momentum play, purely a technical play. It's in an uptrend. I think you continue to ride it. If you have a core position, which I'm assuming you do because you've bought into the secular story, you hold that, but you take a portion of that and you trade it around momentum. So, so Tesla falls into high multiple camp, and that's part of the problem, at least just in terms of the broader market dynamics working against it and, and others. But, but look, the fact that we're talking about this as a delivery story, I, I think that the delivery numbers have surprised to the upside over the last couple quarters. Um, if you listen to Chamath, one of the things he said is they've got their, first of all, the size of the EV opportunity is, is so extraordinary. It's bigger than expected. And, and that's good news and bad news. A lot of the drivers for Tesla's outsized valuation, I think, are more related to the technology and the battery and things um, when really the, the blocking and tackling here is the EV market and deliveries and free cash flow, which are things that they are producing on, but really ultimately have you focus on the valuation. All right, coming up, a housing alert. Rates, they're on the rise. What it means for your mortgage. We will break down the details. Plus, the big news out of McDonald's that got all of our mouths watering, mine included, back right after this.
Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We're tracking shares of AMC Entertainment in the after-hour session. They're up by 2%. The company announcing that it is buying back $35 million worth of debt, which will save them about $5.2 million in interest costs annually. Um, this is the most expensive part of their debt at a 15% interest rate. This may not seem like a big thing. Adam Aaron tweeting, the CEO tweeting um, just moments ago, progress is made when you take big steps or small steps. The important thing is that you are moving forward. Guy Adami, maybe little by little, they can chip away at some of that uh, outstanding debt. No, this is, uh, this is good. I think this is on the margins, really good news. You said it. it's going to save them five and a quarter million dollars. That's great. This is the high end of the interest rate spectrum, which you mentioned as well. This is going to add some fuel to the fire uh, for all the people that will watch your documentary, which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, comes out next week. So I think this is, part- listen, it's definitely not negative for the stock. Uh, I think it's on the margins positive. I do have a documentary out next week. It's not on AMC. That one is still no, on the I back know burner, that, so to speak. But, it's, it's, uh, yeah, but just to yeah. clarify, just in case people are wondering, um, we'll have more on that one, the one that premieres next week, next week. But in the meantime, on AMC, the stock is still climbing. The after hours up 2.4% at this point, Tim. Um, I know your views on this thing, but, but still, this is good news. No. Yeah, I, I think that they're dealing from a position of relative strength uh, to be able to do this and take out high cost debt, which was one of the issues that really looked like this this was going to cave uh, before they found retail support. And, and so um, this is capital restructuring and this is uh, engineering of the balance sheet. And it's all smart stuff to do. And frankly, um, to the extent that a lot of people needed to see a sustainable business model, uh, One side is the revenue uh, and the income statement, but part of that is also a function really of just their operating costs and their cost of capital and their debt servicing costs. So you have to be happy about this. Hasn't really changed to me uh, the top line uh, outlook, but but why not deal from a position of strength when you have it? Yep. All right. We've got some big news on the housing front to talk about mortgage rates. They're back on the rise. The 30 year fix is now back above three percent, the highest level in nearly three months. So will rising rates start to wreck the red hot housing market? Let's bring in Ivy Zellman, the CEO of Zellman and Associates and author of Gimme Shelter, Hard Calls and Soft Skills from a Wall Street Trailblazer, which hits bookstores tomorrow. Ivy, congratulations on the book. We've certainly been been tracking you for a long time. Um, In terms of your thoughts on housing specifically, you saw some red flags even before mortgage rates ticked above 3%. So so what's your assessment of where we are right now? Well, we are concerned that the housing market is too hot, and we think that rising rates will definitely dampen demand. Um, It's very disconcerting to think what the housing market would look like if mortgage rates were to rise to rise to as little as 4%. A 30-year fixed um, rate at 4%, we think, would arrest the market, and we would see a significant slowdown. And that's really due to, Melissa, the fact that two-thirds of mortgage holders in the United States have a rate locked in below 4%. So rising rates are really going to impact, I think, overall demand, and the free money party train might be coming to an end. Ivy, on the high end, um, which is obviously an important part of the housing, is it, will it have the same effect uh, to, to those participants? Actually, I think that it's worse for the high end, frankly, because I think as rates rise and more people are disincentivized to move. So, you know, the same stat, if you look at those people that have a mortgage rate below 3.75, it's 54 percent. So think about all those people that were fortunate to lock in below three. They're not going anywhere. So the move up market 
will feel it more so, and the second home market will also start to slow. So we think the high end or move up and second time move up and luxury will be more impacted. The affordable product, you know, I think that today um, home ownership is still a preferred long-term way to build wealth. And I think monthly payments right now are up in the double digits. was really just attributed to all the home price inflation. But I do think that it will dampen affordability uh, for those trying to buy their first time home. But that's where the demand is the, is the strongest right now. To what extent should the institutional presence uh, within the real estate market be factored in? And to what extent, if, if at all, does it kind of abate some of the downside risks here? Well, I certainly think there's a strong um, bid from institutional investors across many of the smile states, sand states, you know, think of red states. We're seeing a tremendous amount of capital come into the space, especially for build for rent. So what happens is there'll be a tremendous amount of new construction. And the assumption is all those homes will get leased up. We just published a report on the build for rent market. It's a deep dive thematic report. We follow the money for those of you old enough to remember the movie, uh, the great or uh, the, the president's men uh, with uh, the Nixon imp- uh, impeachment, um, basically $60 billion over the last 18 to 24 mount- months have been, has been announced entering the build for rent space that's mostly unlevered. So I think we're going to have concentration risks, frankly. And I think markets like Phoenix today are exponentially higher than any other market. And of that $60 billion, only roughly about 20 25% of it's been deployed. So I think the, that the institutional investors love this space and they're going to keep deploying the capital because they've raised all this money. They have to put the money somewhere. And Resi's a prettier, prettier girl of the dance, as I like to say, than any other place. Within the sector, Ivy, if we do believe that the rising rates and other factors are going to sort of ding um, home purchasing, is a smart trade to go into rentals? No, I think the rental market is extremely um, robust in terms of valuations are at um, extremely high levels. And I think that the rental market for both multifamily and for single family, we're currently seeing um, the metrics at peakish levels. So it's hard to imagine, honestly, Melissa, that it's going to get better from here. All right. Ivy, great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Ivy Zellman, congratulations on the book. We'll look for it. Let's trade housing here, guys. Tim, what do you think? I mean, the the argument has always been that the tight supply is going to offset any sort of increase in mortgage rates that we see. Right. Well, so the home builders are, are not necessarily in, investing in home builders is not necessarily investing in the housing market. We've talked about ancillary and adjacency investments in in everything from HVAC to home furnishings. Um, big, big hits in restoration hardware, Williams-Sonoma today, um, and even healthy pullbacks in Home Depot and Lowe's. Those Home Depot and Lowe's are pullbacks I, I want to own. On the home builder side, a couple of things that Ivy talked about are, are concerning to me. This, this land inflation dynamic... Uh, where they have to chase uh, to actually lock in land banks, et cetera, I think ultimately could be setting some of the home builders, albeit with much better balance sheets than they've had in a long time, uh, to a place where I, I think they may be setting themselves up at a time when affordability really is the big issue. Um, I think if you're looking at the overall dynamic around people having equity in their homes and consumers being robust, I think that's a trend that are going to continue to follow and you would still want to stay in home improvement names and, and ancillary. Home builders arguably have been dead for six months or longer, despite the fact that these companies have incredible order books and have talked about, despite some, some uh, input cost issues, that their businesses are as sound as they've been in a long time. 
All right. Now, before we wrap things up for this evening, we want to share with you some very exciting news out of McDonald's. The fast food joint announcing today the seasonal yeah. McRib is coming back. The sandwich <laughs> of seasoned boneless pork, barbecue sauce, onions, pickles on a hoagie-style bun is celebrating its 40th anniversary. It will be available nationwide starting November 1st. Guy, I know you're going to mark it on your calendar. You don't even know the half of it. I mean, I will be. The, I will wait online. I'll knock down about three of those mac ribs, and I'll have a couple cheeseburgers as well. Nothing like it. Everybody should queue up for that. That's worth waiting for. Filet of fish, not so much. In time for my birthday is all I have to say. Thanks, guys, for being with us. That does it here for us tonight on Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.